You're listening to the Planet Earth 2072 podcast from City of Dreams Media Incorporated. Louisiana Basin has now gotten more than 43 days of rain and it doesn't appear to be slowing down. Flooding from New Orleans and all the way to Hammond has brought a lot of businesses to a halt. Orange crops for the year are in danger of being decimated. The winter storm that froze much of the South over the past couple of months has taken a toll on whatever growers were hoping to salvage after another bad year. Congress continues to debate over the climate action bill, now ballooning to more than $3 trillion. The Wilson Republican Party continues to hold fast against the current bill. Meanwhile, President Katherine Emerson says that she is ready to do whatever is within her power to make this bill happen. Cities all across the U.S. are experiencing the highest temperatures ever. In Dallas, the thermostat popped up at 106. In Boise, it got as hot as 103. And down in Miami, it was a blistering 105 degrees with a heat index of over 114. Now proclaims many of the coastal regions of Vietnam, especially the Vung Tau area, a disaster zone. Hundreds of thousands of residents have been forced out of their homes as floodwaters remain also, sitting in Miami's place mayor now. Miami's calling for the state and the federal governments to do more to help. The October King Tide is the worst ever as waters have reached more than three feet across Miami Beach and parts of Miami-Dade. The current seawall is not working as in the pump system has been working non-stop for more than five years. struggle with mudslides as rough weather lingers over the city. They have now experienced more than three straight weeks of rain. People have left many parts of town because they're afraid of the mudslides taking them away and washing them into the ocean. Some are staying in their homes to protect whatever they own. Meanwhile, ports in Cuba remain closed as flooding in the streets of Havana worsens. Tens of thousands have... As of the taping of this episode, world leaders, not all of them, are in Egypt for COP27, the Global Climate Conference. During the event, leaders announced the following dire warning. This UN climate conference is a reminder that the answer is in our hands. And the clock is ticking. We are in the fight of our lives and we are losing. Greenhouse gas emissions keep growing. Global temperatures keep rising, and our planet is fast approaching tipping points that will make climate chaos irreversible. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. We're on our way to a climate hell? Well, there's a lot to unpack there, but this moment got me asking, what can we do in a short period of time? Can we really cut our ties to this economic engine that runs our lives because so much of what we do burns fossil fuels. I mean, think about it, warming and cooling our homes, running our cars, having things delivered to us, getting food and clothes and so much more. Can we change our lives so dramatically that we can cut our emissions before again, we enter this climate hell? President Biden thinks so, and he's hoping the US will lead the way. We immediately rejoined the Paris Agreement We convened major climate summits and (laughs) reestablished 
I apologize you ever pulled out of the agreement. We established major economic and major economies forum to spur countries around the world to raise, raise their climate ambitions. We're proving that good climate policy is good economic policy. It's a strong foundation for durable, resilient, inclusive economic growth. It's driving progress in the private sector. It's driving progress around the world. And the sum total of the actions my administration is taking puts the United States on track to achieve our Paris Agreement goal of reducing emissions 50 to 52 percent below 25 levels by 2005 levels by 2030. If we're going to win this fight, every major emitter nation needs to align with the 1.5 degrees. We can no longer plead ignorance to the consequences of our actions or continue to repeat our mistakes. Everyone has to keep accelerating efforts throughout this decisive decade. In this episode of the Planet Earth 2072 podcast, we're going to look at how we, human beings, have gotten ourselves in this mess. It also asks the question, can we get out of it before the temperature rises to that dangerously high three degrees Celsius increase that scientists tell us we need to avoid? But first, I want to introduce you to ecologist and associate professor at Florida International University, Tiffany Troxler. What led you down the path of science? Was it something that some big moment in your life or did you just happen to fall into it? You know, I fortunately had the privilege of growing up on the Gulf Coast of Florida and my dad was an avid fisherman and he coaxed me with you know powdered donuts and chocolate milk early in the morning to get me to go out on the boat with him. <laughs> um, but it just really uh, spurred my interest in the environment and you know just uh, you know having those observations of of beautiful sunrises and plentiful fish and beautiful mangroves and just clear water it inspired me to think more about you know what was underlying that beauty that I um, had the privilege of experiencing as a young person. I've been trying to figure this out and I really can't pinpoint it for myself, but when the first time was that I heard the words climate change, and I, I'm still th trying to think of like, when's the first time I heard that? But do you recall the first time that you heard that, that phrase? You know, I really can't either. I, I can only imagine that, you know, it popped up into my undergraduate uh, work uh, either at uh, Tulane University or some of the undergraduate work I undertook at, at FIU. You know, I think just sort of the the impact of climate change really hit me uh, when I worked with the the IPCC and the uh, the task force on greenhouse gas inventories, and this was you know 2010. Um, and you're in this room with you know, most governments around the world, and they're all working together trying to negotiate um, how to solve this climate crisis and just the immensity of all of those uh, individuals and delegates in the same room, you know, trying to work through these very difficult issues. Um, it just really hit me. What a challenge we have uh, now and uh, will continue to have ahead of us. As a scientist, what do you think, how should we view the future? You know, are you in the moment because you have to be with your research 
Or do you have a view of the future when you think about the climate crisis? How should we be viewing it? Yeah, well, um, it's interesting because, you know, working more in the sort of urban climate change field, you know, we as scientists try to uh, work closely with um, people that are on the ground trying to uh, develop uh, both policies and, you know, projects that help to uh, reduce the impacts of climate change. And one of the one of the research activities that we engage in together is trying to vision the future and use that as a tool to then step back from what the future could be and, you know, step back from that and sort of itemize the steps that would help us to get there. And so, you know, I've had the, the wonderful opportunity to think about all kinds of different uh, futures that, um, you know, that are, that are positive, but it also helps you to understand that there is a big lift between now and then uh, if we're going to realize those positive futures. One of the things I've been reading about you is uh, looking at mangroves and how we could use that perhaps to help us in, in this issue of uh, carbon emissions. Tell me a little bit about the role mangroves play down here, what role they could play, and that phrase people will see from time to time, blue carbon. Yeah, so so blue carbon is is largely about coastal wetlands. And, and coastal wetlands are you know, wetlands, so their soils are wet, um, but they're also uh, saline or, you know, because they're positioned along the coastline. And so, you know, compared to other types of wetlands, those uh, coastal wetlands can accumulate more carbon uh, in their soils. So they're, you know, those mangroves or, you know, other types of coastal wetland species are sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, putting that into their, their plant material and their, and their roots. And then after that plant material, you know, goes through its life cycle and then, you know, senesces or falls off the plant, then uh, that material gets buried uh, below ground. And over time, that builds up uh, something we refer to as um, peat or, you know, very rich organic uh, soil. And so, you know, depending on the area of these coastal wetlands that you have, it can be a, a fairly large sink of carbon dioxide uh, that can be shunted or stored below ground, you know, and also from the perspective of blue carbon, help to complement uh, our strategy to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions to sort of provide a, a more diverse portfolio of ways that we can uh, reduce our, our total greenhouse gas emissions. It's not going to be the one and only way, but you know, some people want to have like a number and say, how much do we need? That would be, you know, it would play a big role. And, and, and so I don't know if that's that simple. You know, compared to what we can do to reduce our emissions, you know, it's just a drop in the bucket. Um, but what's really great about mangroves is that it also, you know, offers all these co-benefits. You know, it helps to support habitat for um, you know, fish species that uh, support local economies. It provides opportunities for uh, tourism. It holds our coastline together, essentially, so also uh, provides this storm surge protection, you know, depending on how large those mangroves area, areas are. So the, you know, it's just sort of a win-win-win 
a kind of a climate mitigation, uh, you know, strategy. When you think about mitigation, you think about adaptation and, you know, what, what the cities and communities of South Florida are trying to do to prepare for the future. What are your thoughts about those strategies right now and the, the attitudes that the general public has, but also, again, the politicians and the planners? What, what do you think about their attitudes and what they're doing? Is it enough? Are we doing the right things to get ready for the future? Um, you know, we're, we're definitely setting the course. Um, and, you know, there are things happening from, you know, at the household level to the city level, county level, state, you know, we just saw uh, something come down from the governor's office about an investment in uh, sea level rise planning and flood resiliency across the state. So that, you know, there's definitely a positive trajectory that's been set. But, you know, we are behind the curve. Like we are already seeing uh, the impacts of climate change in, in many different ways uh, in South Florida. So we have, a, we have quite a bit of catching up to do uh, to ensure that we can protect, most importantly, the quality of life of residents that, that live here in South Florida. But it, it is, you know, it is moving and we just need to do more faster. <laughs> You're listening to Planet Earth 2072, a production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Luis Hernandez. We're talking to Associate Professor Tiffany Troxler from FIU, and you can find links to her work on our website, planetearth2072.com. Now, what do you think about what she said, if we're doing enough locally to shift the tides? Well, remember, you can always share your thoughts on our website or on Facebook under Planet Earth 2072. Now, by the way, there's a book that goes with this podcast. It's also called Planet Earth 2072. It's a science fiction novel. It's a collection of stories which take place in Miami and Las Vegas in the early fall of 2072. Now, you can read the first two stories for free right now. It's on the website or on Wattpad. If you happen to be on that uh, platform, I'm there under Radio Host. So check it out. Now let's get back to our conversation with Associate Professor Tiffany Troxler from FIU. You know, uh, the thing about this podcast is, you know, I've been talking to a lot of young people. You know, I mean, the podcast is called Planet Earth 2072. The question is, what will this world look like in 50 years? And many of us won't be around to see that, but that younger generation will. And so I've been asking them about their fears, their hopes, their concerns. And I get a lot of really interesting answers. But you also work with young people working in education. And I'm wondering, what, what do you hear from them? Are they afraid of the future? Um, are they hopeful for the future? What are the con typical concerns and questions they have? Yeah, so I, I do as a as a professor at um, FIU. I teach courses there, um, you know, to undergraduate and graduate students. Uh, one I taught this past semester was uh, sustainable cities, and you know, sort of challenged the students to explore what cities around the U.S. and the the world are doing to tackle. Uh, both sustainability development goals, as well as keeping our planet within uh, planetary boundaries is another framework that's been very useful. 
you know, to scale what we're doing locally to having a planetary impact. And, you know, they're eyes wide open. They ask really good questions and their solutions are integrative. They're interdisciplinary. They're thinking about it in a very comprehensive way, but they're also practically, you know, thinking about it in a practical way, you know, when they, when they sense that, you know, this is too, you know, (laughs) too optimistic or, you know, doesn't seem realistic, you know, they're, they're critically trying to think, think through that. And all of that to say that, you know, the more that we can incorporate perspectives and um, ideas from, from younger people, uh, the better off we will be. And it, you know, fun, you know, fundamentally crucial to our future. Do you ever find yourself, by the way, when, when you're talking to them, uh, you know, because I wonder if they're asking you, you know, what you think of the future, even though that's a future for them, they're the ones who are going to live in it, how you feel about the future and, and what your greatest concerns are. We have to get busy. You know, we, we've got, we've got uh, increasing uh, heat, increasing change in sea level, and there are a lot of things we can do in the urban environment to mitigate those impacts, but we absolutely have to, you know, I, I think back to Monroe County, one of the Southeast Florida Regional Climate Change Compact discussions, and, you know, courageous communication was a word that came out of uh, the administrators there. And and so, you know, it's really important that we we understand what we can do and what we can't do and ensure that you know, the, the solutions that we c- come up with are protecting our environment, are protecting our people just as much as it's protecting our infrastructure. And we also have to think about how those three types of systems can help each other. You know, you can, you can build infrastructure, but you can also build natural, you know, hard infrastructure, gray infrastructure, but then you can build, you know, natural infrastructure around it. And it gives that gray infrastructure, more resiliency, or, you know, you're building safeguards uh, to ensure that we are moving forward in, you know, protecting people and uh, protecting people's uh, quality of life, their ability to prosper here in South Florida. So my view is optimistic. I have all kinds of reasons to be optimistic about the future but we absolutely have to be realistic. Uh, we have to have hard conversations and we have to you know, continue to pull the funding uh, so that we can, and have our community involved in this process. You know, we can't just say, we're gonna slap down these kinds of you know, solution, solutions or adaptation strategies without you know, very critically involving, meaningfully involving the public. So you you have an optimistic view of the future. All right. So I want you to to tell me, imagine that I send you into the future and you land in Miami and it's December of 2072. What what do you see? That um yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I, I have a lot of fun thinking about, uh, you know, what, and, not, and I'm not just talking about like, you know, flying cars or anything like that. I, I literally think about, okay, if they're telling me the ocean could rise this much, uh-huh. temperatures could rise this much, I, I try to picture, you know, what has to change? How do we adapt? How do we rebuild our buildings, our homes, our way of transportation? What, or maybe there's one thing that has to change, you know, just in our daily lives 
to adapt to that future? I don't know. I, I just, it's, it's fun, but. Yeah. Well, I, you know, diversity, you know, in terms of how we get around and how, we, how we do our work, um, how we support ourselves, you know, meaning like, uh, just, uh, you know, getting to the, you know, providing ourselves with food and, 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 and water, I, you know, because as we move further into the future, things are going to become more uncertain. You know, it's going to be harder to anticipate what is going to happen from day to day. And so if we're building in these ways in which we can accommodate that uncertainty in our daily lives, um, that will help us to manage that uncertainty a little bit better. But um, yeah, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with uh, some of our architecture students in the College of Communications, Architecture and the Arts. And, you know, they've come up with some pretty wild, <laughs> pretty wild ideas. You know, we've got uh, walkways that are connecting the tops of buildings. Uh, we've got all kinds of neat uh, public transportation you know, more amphibious living. Um, of course, they incorporated some of those structures that can elevate kind of like the Jetsons, you know. <laughs> it's, it's hard to say, but you know, it's there's a lot of really creative thinking out there and, you know, directing that creative thinking toward tangible solutions that protect our environment and our people. 2072 will look a lot better than, than what it would if we didn't do those things. Mm. This is the Planet Earth 2072 podcast, a production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, you can follow us on most podcast platforms. If you're a listener, please tap the subscribe button. And if you like the content, rate and review and then share it. Now, we've been talking with Associate Professor at Florida International University, Tiffany Troxler. If you want to learn more about her work, you can find it at planetearth2072.com or on Facebook under Planet Earth 2072. Before we continue, I wanted to tell you about another podcast from City of Dreams Media Incorporated. It's called The Reporter's Studio. It's an inside look at what it's like to be a journalist. What do you know about the news media? Have you ever met a journalist? Welcome to the Reporter Studio. The first one was like the Superman phase, where it's like, I can do anything and I'll never be harmed. And then the second one was, I can do most things, maybe I'll be harmed. And then the third one was, something will happen to me. If Audience I anger. Um, people are like, oh, these are fact checkers are just, you know, they're not really umpires. They're the liberal media. They're trying to put their thumb on the scales. But worse than that, like you'd be kind of horrified by the profanity and some of the. That's if emails. you go to Mars, drop off, and then immediately come back. Like we're talking about something eight, nine, 10, 12 years you're going to that planet. And while you're there, you're not on the surface of the planet. You're, you're stuck in your spacecraft or stuck underground because it's. I'm nobody's patsy. And one thing I learned after the Iraq war is that you just cannot allow. Um, someone else to control. Today it's a bit rough being a journalist, and sometimes I would agree, we deserve the criticism. But many of us are just ordinary people trying to do a job the best we can. 
Learn more about the reality of the lives of journalists at The Reporter Studio. Go to thereporterstudio.com and find the podcast on your podcast app. You can learn more at thereporterstudio.com. Now I want to turn over to our next guest, a Gen Zer. John Paul Mejia is currently working on his degree at American University. He's also the national spokesperson at the Sunrise Movement and formerly the co-host of the podcast House on Fire. It's a podcast put together by the Clio Institute. Let's meet John Paul Mejia. When did the topic of climate change become part of your life? Do you remember, was it a class that you were in or something you saw or somebody you talked to? When did you learn about it? Well, I remember when I was really young, I really liked science. I really liked environmental science, particularly. Um, I am Colombian American. All of my family is back in Colombia. And I remember every summer that I would go back to visit my grandparents, I would spend a lot of time with them um, in nature. Um, my grandmother gave me a very close connection to the environment around us. She would make ailments and teas whenever I was feeling sick, which gave me a very close relationship to the land around us. And my grandfather was always very politically active and polit politically aware. And, um, you know, he was a union organizer back in his day. He um, was always very progressive. Um, and those were underlying values that I never really understood at a young age to be a part of me. But as I got older, I think they were activated in different ways. And so that's all to say that I was pretty passionate about the environment and cared about the climate crisis when I first started hearing about it, but never really felt like it was an issue of, of politics or activation. Um, and you know, I grew up in Miami um, and that all changed in my sophomore year of high school four years ago to like four years ago now um, when a hurricane known as Hurricane Irma um, was brewing in the Atlantic and intensified to a category four or five storm overnight, something that folks really hadn't seen before. Um, and that was a bit scary, right? And my mom and I didn't really have anywhere to go. We went off to the home of a more affluent friend uh, to wait out the storm there. And, you know, thankfully, the storm changed its trajectory and only its tailwinds hit Miami. But when we left our friend's place and we started going back to, neighbor to our neighborhood, um, something struck me, which was the damage that was done to Miami was carved along the lines of inequality of race and class. And that's something that really struck me. Um, I remember in those moments seeing that some of the houses that were rumbled the, the, the worst um, were low-income homes. And I remember being in school a week later when, you know, the power was back that, you know, some of my friends, for some of my friends, the power took way longer to come back than others. And I think I started, you know, putting these moments together in my head and being like, oh man, I think the climate crisis might not be just an environmental issue. I think it might be an issue of resources and power or whatever that means for a, you know, 
14 year old or whatever. And that's when it sort of clicked for me that there was, there was something grander in this and I never let it go. And I found a community of activists and mentors that were ready to welcome me into a fight. And that's led me up to this point. You know, I've, I've read a number of articles about how your generation is dealing with a great deal of anxiety about this topic. And I mean, I've heard different things and I'm wondering from you, your, your thoughts on one, is that true? Are you, is it really an anxiety? And, and if it is, I mean, how do you, how would you describe it to, to us? It's like, what is it that you're feeling about your future? I think I want to give you two answers here. One personal and sort of qualitative based on the folks that I know. And then one other that's a little bit more intellectual. Um, so I think on one side here, I think it's true. I think it's true. I think that young people are feeling anxiety in multiple forms. Um, you know, on the one end, a lot of us were born into a world that never really made sense for us, right? Um, I was born in 2002. Um, you know, some some young people in their infancy have certain memories of a financial crisis in 2008, um, you know, the election of Trump in the midst of high school, which was something that hard, was hard for some folks, another financial crisis, a pandemic. And throughout that, it's felt like we've been cheated out of a future that's worth dreaming for, right? You like grow up, um, doing all the things you got to do to have the future that you want, right? And it suddenly became a thing where part of growing up was this realization that none of those things are guaranteed. And not only are they not guaranteed, but it could actually be a lot worse. We might grow up into a world that is to an extent uninhabitable, um, you know, that's less figurative and more literal when it comes to folks in Miami and different frontline communities in this country a world where getting a meaningful and good paying job is really hard, right? We're still dealing with shocks from various economic disasters and they hit young people particularly hard. So all of these things induce an incredible amount of anxiety. I remember coming to college too, after a year of being on Zoom classes and being away from our friends, the social anxiety was like through the roof, nothing that I've ever felt before. And so I think that's really real for our generation. And the second more intellectual answer is that this is a bit affirmed. Um, so there was, I think two years ago, an article that came out published by The Intercept um, about something called Zebellion, <laughs> which, which is a funny title, but essentially what um, the journalists in this piece were doing was acquiring some classified documents from, or declassified documents from the Pentagon that um, basically looked into it was part of this program called JLAS in the Pentagon, which trains new recruits. Um, and the program is like any other military um, program. It basically gives hypothetical scenarios and trains, you know, recruits and folks who are becoming part of the military um, on how to respond to those scenarios. And they usually construct scenarios based on um, real events that could unfold based on the world, on what's happening in the world around us. And in 2020, um, one of these hypothetical scenarios was something called Zebellion, where essentially this uh, defense program made a hypothetical scenario, a little bit exaggerated, but nonetheless based in reality, where 
driven by generational malaise, um, you know, the climate crisis, economic uncertainty, a sort of nihilist sense of, of things, um, Gen Z grows really tired of the world around them and rebels. And it's a problem. It's a problem for, for loads of governments around the world. And that's interesting in and of itself. But the research that underpinned some of that was even more interesting. Um, in those papers were cited the fact that millennials suffer from the highest levels of depression generationally. And Gen Z suffers from the highest levels of anxiety generationally. And there's interesting ways to attribute social psychology to this where millennials came of age um, and were raised by parents who had some firm ground or some socialization in an American middle class that actually encouraged social mobility, then to have their bubble popped by a 2008 financial crisis while they were coming of age, right? And so you get expectations shattered, um, depressive tendencies in that generation. Gen Z and its anxiety, on the other hand, has to do with the fact that there were no promises or expectations to begin with. And we're sort of just walking this line of uncertainty as we're growing up. And so that's a really long answer to just affirm the fact that this generation is a very anxious one. And for the organizer like myself, it also produces something to work with, however, because people want to feel safe and secure. And one avenue to having people feel that way is the inspiration of agency. Um, anxiety is produced by you know, feeling like you have no control over what's ahead of you, what's going to happen to you. You know, you're coming up with a, a, a multitude of scenarios in your head and feel powerless in all of them. Inspiring agency in someone helps to combat that. So there's a lot to work with, but the psychology of our generation is, re is really complicated. Thank you for listening to the podcast. This is Planet Earth 2072. Now you can find us on most podcast apps or you can find us on the website, planetearth2072.com. We're also on Facebook, by the way. We're talking with Gen Z or John Paul Mejia, a student at American University. He's also the national spokesperson at the Sunrise Movement. Learn more about him and about the Sunrise Movement at planetearth2072.com. Now, I want to tell you about the book that goes with a podcast because I want to remind you that this idea started as a science fiction novel by the same name. And the first couple of stories are free right now, available on the website. Or if you happen to be on Wattpad, they are there. You can find me under Radio Host. The book is a collection of 12 separate short stories, but they're all interconnected. And it'll be coming out in 2023. You could read the first two stories for free on the website or on Wattpad, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Now let's get back to our conversation with John Paul. This is, tell us about the Sunrise Movement, uh, you know, and and because you told us a little bit about when and, and how it really got started, but... How did you become a part of it? And and how would you describe to anybody, you know, I guess the mission? What is it that, you know, they're trying to do? Yeah. So the Sunrise Movement is an organization and youth-driven social movement that is fighting for a Green New Deal. 
A Green New Deal being a decades-long plan to aggressively stop the climate crisis and create millions of jobs in the process. So the Green New Deal is about being able, as a country and as a government that's responsible, being able to admit how bad things are, um, not only you know in terms of the climate, but also an economy that made something like the climate crisis possible and an economy and a political system that unfortunately doesn't give a lot of representation to people who want real problems fixed and instead, you know, only gives a lot of agency and power to a small number of, of people who, you know, sometimes are behaving in a way that furthers the crisis. So what the Green New Deal is about is, you know, decarbonizing our economy, cleaning it up, using the levers of the government to channel money in the right way instead of channeling it towards fossil fuel billionaires to keep drilling and drilling and drilling, um, you know, putting that money in um, getting people jobs, transforming our economy to a clean one and having those jobs be good and union jobs and paying well and and so on and so forth. That's what the Green New Deal is about. But Sunrise, its, its mission is to be the political youth force that drives that. So we have loads of chapters, what we call hubs around the country that, you know, organize their communities, um, you know, correspond and demand their members of Congress, their local city officials to, to, you know, take action on climate and drive forward a vision of climate justice that is, is rooted in an accountable government and one that ensures justice too. All right. So you've had the opportunity now to see how firsthand to see how government works and it could be slow. It's a slow, slow process. It's just, it's the, and this goes back to the beginning of this nation. It's not, this is not new. It's a slow process to, to get things going. And, um, you do want, I think that you do want to have some kind of bipartisan plan. It tends to stick better if it's, you know, when you have both sides, at least agreeing on parts of it than just one side. But so you've seen that. And then the other part of it is this. As you said, you know, for this to work, we all have to change our lives. Okay. Are, do you think we can do this? As scientists have told us, we have this window. And if we don't, the consequences are going to be pretty bad. 12 years is a short period of time. You know, that's, it's a very short period of time. I don't know. How are you feeling about our ability Politically, socially, can we change the world that fast? I mean, it's kind of ironic because the whole premise of the problem is on how fast we have changed the world in a very short amount of time. And so, you know, there's an irony to the climate crisis where we feel powerless to confront it, yet at the same time, the crisis itself itself summons from the fact that we have moved into an entirely different geological era in the age of this planet. And so what I think, you know, grounded more in the question is that I feel, I feel hopeful 
of of what we could be able to do. And I think the timeline, the, the constraints of the timeline on which we have to move are incredibly scary. And we might not get all of it done, right? Because it's in, in that time, because it's a very scary process, right? However, I don't think that it's a signal to stop or to give up because even now, even now, some aspects of the climate that we have, you know, already changed, there's there's no going back from that now to a certain extent. Some, le- some extent of warming is already locked in. So change to some extent is inevitable, but crisis is a choice. And so we really do have an immense opportunity right now to rethink our priorities as a country, as a people, about how we are orienting to a crisis of historic dimensions like this one, how we want to reorient what we think we deserve and what we think, what rights we think we should have um, as, as a people on this planet. And, you know, to to have agency and steward our own futures of what it's going to mean for us to grow up in this world, our kids to grow up in this world, our neighbors to grow up in this world. And so those sorts of conversations are the ones that really inspire me. And those sorts of conversations are ones that are not constrained to a world of activism. I don't, you know, I love my activist friends, but I don't hang around them too much or I have like a quota on how much I hang around them because What inspires me the most is when I talk to regular everyday people and get to hear what they think, right? And the truth is that they feel some level of of anxiety and also sometimes hopelessness as a consequence of, of, of loads of the things going around us. But when you ask them and give them permission to dream of the world that they would want, or, you know, if you ask them the question, if you were a congressman, if you were a mayor, if you were the president, what would you do? Most people agree. Most people agree that this is a problem. Most people agree that this stems from the fact that everyday people don't have as much economic and political power as most as some others. And most people agree that we all need to do a lot better. And so that 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 sort of imagination and that common ground of of the majority gives me gives me a lot of hope. And I think it's the organizer's tough job to activate that into into action. But, you know, it is it is a slow process. And countering that, honestly, I think it's also incredible to see what a cohesive social movement really since 2018, which is not that long ago, has been able to accomplish in four years. Um, It really amazes me. Let's finish with this. Um, You know, this podcast is called 20 uh, Planet Earth 2072. And it asks the question, what is this world going to look like in the year 2072? You're going to be 70, I believe, right? You're going to be 70 in 2072. Um, I want you to think about Miami. And imagine whether you're living there still or you come to visit, whatever it is. I want you to just picture, what does Miami look like in 2072? After everything that's happened, everything that's changed... What do you see? I think that we all grasp a moment that happened. It was maybe a storm or a flood where we lost a lot of people. 
And we lost a lot of places that we loved. And we feel nostalgic of the memories of where we grew up, where we loved, where we lived. And that those memories inspired some form of pain. But that attachment to those memories and that attachment and that commitment to a love of place made us rethink a lot of priorities and made us really think of what mattered. And at that moment, we decided that Miami was worth saving. And so we gathered as Miamians from all walks of life to demand that there was a city, a county, a federal government that represented us and would save us. And I think that is the legacy that Miami could, could really have. And so when I look at Miami, when I think of Miami in 2072, obviously I keep some of the realities of sea level rise and the threats that, you know, maybe the beach is facing right now. But I also see a people who didn't give up and who committed to it. And I could probably see myself living there, honestly. And I could see us, you know, being ready for a next storm, having our people safe and having a city well protected and having a city insulated against danger. And that comes from, from, a, from a duty of care and a duty of commitment to a world that we want. And so that's, that's, that's how I imagine Miami. And I'm, I'm just gonna keep fighting for that Miami in whatever way I can, because that's how I feel. <laughs> We've been talking with Gen Zer John Paul Mejia, who's working on his degree at American University. He's also the national spokesperson at the Sunrise Movement and formerly the co-host of the podcast House on Fire, a podcast by the Clio Institute. Remember, any questions you have about the podcast, you can find it online, planetearth2072.com, also on Facebook. We're also on Instagram now, too, the Planet Earth Series. Well, coming up, recognizing exactly what you say, which is that we can, if we just keep building walls, you know, we're, you know, that's, that's not a solution. That's just a bandaid. And so, um, so yes, we are looking at um, both on the mitigating climate change side and the adapting to the climate change that we're facing, no matter what we do with mitigation. Um, because even if we draw carbon, you know, emissions down to zero now, we still have warming and sea level rise in store for us that is you know, significant. We'll hear from Professor Amy Clement and Gen Zer Nicole Gazzo. A crisis will always present an opportunity, a chance to grow, a, a chance to learn something new, build better, build new. And so the fact that we're already referring to the climate crisis as an economic opportunity after COVID, after this economic turmoil truly means that the climate crisis is being debated. It's being viewed realistically in a capitalist vision, which makes it even more realistic. Thanks again for listening to the Planet Earth 2072 podcast. You can learn more about us and about our guests on the website. And if you do listen on the podcast, please subscribe, rate and review. And once again, thanks for listening.